Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to have the sibling duo, Amanda Bressler and Alex Bressler, back on the podcast to discuss their latest Naval Postgraduate School paper on small business. Amanda is the Chief Strategy Officer at PW Communications, and Alex is the Chief Data Officer. Amanda and Alex, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having us. Always great to chat with you, Eric. Thanks a lot. Look forward to the discussion. Great. So let's just like jump right into it and start out with your headline result. So small business dollars have grown 68% between 2015 and 2021, but the total number of small businesses actually fell by 23%. So what's going on here? Yeah, it's a head scratcher at first glance. It certainly was for us. And the long and the short of it is what this means is that there is a small number of companies that qualify as small businesses by government standards that have grown their revenue in the defense market substantially over the last six years. And that's really the only way to explain how a smaller number of companies can consume substantially more in contract dollars over that period. So that's the top line finding here is fewer people at the party and everyone is getting a bigger. And so does the small business program in reality, is it actually like achieving its stated goals? What are the goals of the small business program? Great question. And that was really the impetus behind this research. So for any listeners who are who need a bit of a refresher, when we talk about the small business program, what we mean is the fact that Congress mandates that a certain percentage of all contract dollars every year be set aside for small and disadvantaged businesses. And they justify this on the basis that it leads to job growth. It strengthens the overall defense industrial base. It creates economic opportunities for underserved communities. There's a laundry list of justifications that Congress provides on paper for why there is preferential treatment in government contracting for certain types of businesses. Now, to your question, what's happening in reality? And we were very interested in trying to answer that, in part because in spite of all of these stated objectives, the program has been measured almost exclusively by one single metric, and that is whether or not government stakeholders are in fact awarding 23% of all of their contract dollars to companies that qualify as small and disadvantaged. Full stop. There is no metric around assessing whether any of those other objectives are being met. And so in our research, we sought to answer that question. And from our findings, Eric, The answer is no. Um, These objectives have not been met. And in fact, we feel that the small businesses this program was designed to serve are actually worse off because of these programs. Can you just uh, bring that home to me? Why are they worse off, right? Like they're getting all this money. It's set aside for them. I I can understand maybe like the Department of Defense isn't getting what it needs out of these companies. 
but how is it actually like hurting the companies themselves that are getting the money? It's hurting small businesses. And that's an important distinction because truly small businesses, at least the way that most Americans view what it means to be a small business, they are not the ones that are winning these contracts. And this gets to an important point. So what does the government define as a small business? And that's this complicated answer of, it depends on what you sell, depends on what your NAICS code is. And it can either be based on how many employees you have or how much revenue you generate. And there are a number of categories where the government has no revenue cap on what you can generate and still qualify as small as long as you don't exceed 500 employees. So there are companies with hundreds of millions in defense contracts every year, and in some cases, billions of dollars in defense contracts every year that qualify as small by government standards. And those are the companies that consume the vast majority of set-aside dollars. Yeah, I remember when the whole COVID thing struck and government was like, dispersing a bunch of money to firms like Moderna. I like look through them as, whoa, Moderna is actually a small business by these standards. I think you brought out some of these examples where like men's clothing was one size and then women's clothing was, was a completely different size for small business size standards. It seems weird to me, like these inconsistencies. Yeah, it certainly doesn't play into common sense. I don't think everyday Americans would believe that Moderna, I don't know what, how many millions of Americans have taken a Moderna shot in the last two years, but I don't think any of us perceive them as the kind of small business that's the backbone of America, like the local restaurant or your barber shop. And there are, you know, countless examples of this. Progeny, that's a name that came up on the, I, I guess it was the Senate floor recently. They're a small business and they have a, three and a half billion dollar market cap. They are only a small business in the eyes of these esoteric and arbitrary criteria that the government uses. They're not a small business in the eyes of everyday Americans. I, I would just say that like many things, the system that we have in place is completely uncorrelated to logic. And the, the very blatantly obvious things that I think most Americans would want to have a discussion about as it relates to classifying, say, a small business, aren't even considered in the very opaque ways that they decide what is a small business. And again, as Amanda will discuss in greater detail, there isn't even a definitive answer. But to me, you'd start off with some very obvious things. If you're a publicly traded company, it's hard to argue that you, you should be considered a small business. If you have hundreds of millions, or even in some cases, near billions of dollars in revenue, from the federal government, you're, you're not a small business. It doesn't matter how many employees you have. And unfortunately, that's just completely ignored in the system that we have today. So it's important to highlight that. Yeah, some of the data you guys had was actually a little bit shocking, but you listed out there's these small businesses, which are really big, and they're getting hundreds of millions a year. In one case, Atlantic Diving Supply was getting well over a billion dollars a year, and they were getting like up to $3 billion in prime contracts from the government. So it's just, all it is just like, they happen to fall under the, the number. Like, how do I have less than 500 employees or something and take in $3 billion a year? In the case of Atlantic Diving Supply, they're an interesting example because they have, they've uh, come under some heat in recent years. If you Google them, you'll see they, there were some lawsuits, some of them related to their size standard. I think they may have lost their small business size certification for a period of time and then they got it back. 
And I think their example in particular relates to these loopholes that exist in the program where if you're a redistributor of other products, there's a whole separate set of rules that apply. So I think they may, in fact, just take in inventory and then redistribute it. But don't quote me on that, even though this is on air. all, All it is to say is you bring up the fact that there are all of these loopholes and special circumstances that really can only be accessed by organizations, companies that are familiar with the system. So if the purpose of these programs is to level the playing field, which is a quote, that is an objective quoted from one of the websites or congressional documents that they literally say, this is to level the playing field. And the folks on the inside, these big, small businesses are the only ones that know about all of these loopholes. You're missing the mark. Yeah, I actually just recently saw, I think, so there had been these caps like service companies could only outsource 50%. They had to perform 50% or more. I think the same was for manufacturing, but there's that loophole, right? There's like certain types of reselling that doesn't get included in that. So maybe they're they're bucketing that. But there's a new FAR rule from 2021 that requires companies with small business set-asides to perform at least 50% of the work. So I think it closed some of those existing holes. You think that will solve some of the problems or are there just like other, there's a whole suite of other things going on and other loopholes and other things that the insiders will always have the right to track. I also want to point something out. Unless I misunderstood my read of the FAR, the small business has to perform at least 50% of the work, but they can do so in conjunction with other similarly situated companies, meaning multiple small businesses can partner together and collectively perform that work. And it's it counts as if that individual small business is doing the work. And then you open up the the, the floodgates of, okay, so that means that there's 50% of the work that they can also sub out to large businesses. But if there is such a broad definition of what qualifies as small, you're making this landscape even more anti-competitive if you're allowing these, frankly, large businesses that qualify as small to work together as similarly situated contractors and then box out others that way. So I don't see that really solving this problem unless because they don't need to sub the work out to large businesses. They are large businesses. Is a revenue cap preferable instead? You said some of them do have revenue versus like they have both or one or the other, like employment versus revenue. Should they just go straight to a revenue cap of something? I think you guys said like the average large size small business is like 41 million. Is is there like a magic number or what would you recommend? Yeah. First of all, we really feel strongly that it should be a revenue number and employee count should be irrelevant, especially in the age of automation. You can grow into a very large business and have a fraction of the employees today relative to what it would take to generate that revenue 30 years ago. So I think employee headcount is not a meaningful statistic here. And then in terms of what that magic number is, for size standards on a revenue basis, we heard an interesting suggestion from someone recently that you could actually use public data like tax records and things like that to assess industries and define each industry accordingly. So it would be dynamic because as industries change, maybe the definition of what it means to be a small versus large player in that industry is different. We would recommend a common sense approach where 
you're somehow leveraging data about these industries that's publicly available so everyone understands where the number is coming from. It's not a fiefdom of the Small Business Administration and people who don't understand these industries assigning dollar figures. It's real industry data and it's some common sense thresholds. What is common sense? Because like when you said, I think in your paper, you said there's large small business category and then here's like this average number. But still, there's no such thing as that in the real world. There's just like a continuum of companies. It's always going to be arbitrary, right? What is non-arbitrary about selecting a size for small business? You bring up a good point. It's certainly a challenge and you're, you're not going to necessarily get it perfect, but there's a lot of room for improvement between where we are today and that perfect magic number. So I think starting with data that you can access through trade associations, industry groups, tax documents, like I said, and trying to come up with how many, let's like take janitorial services firms, right? Like how many are there in America? And what are they doing annually in revenue, generally speaking, based on the data you can access publicly? And how many of them do more or less than the average? Like just coming up with some metrics. And Alex, as a data person, maybe you can give a more detailed answer to this about how you would actually use public data to come up with some of these numbers. But I think it's certainly possible. The data is there, but frankly, I don't even want to opine on these sorts of things. There needs to be a frank discussion about why these programs exist, what the purpose of it is, how much of it is just pathos-driven propaganda for the government to say something that isn't true necessarily and just adds to bureaucratic process and justifies people's jobs versus serving a justifiable purpose for the American citizens. And you need to be, that's the most important thing, frankly. It's not about anything quantitative. But to the extent you want to make it quantitative, you need to have an explainable Across government agreement on what a small business needs. And until you do that, none of this stuff matters. And again, there's public data that's there that can do all that needs to be done as far as setting reasonable standards. All, all the procurement data is public. The majority of the subcontracting data is public. All the assistance data is public. As Amanda mentioned, there's non-public, but the government could obviously leverage this tax data for EIN numbers and uh, things like that. So there's all sorts of things that can be done, but if, if, you, if you don't start with what matters first, all that's just additional waste of time. Yeah, so we're, I want to circle back on the broader issues, I think, like almost the philosophical issues with small business. But just to go on this thread a little bit, we're talking about the size, small business versus large business. But Ben Horowitz, of course, famous venture capital guy at A16Z, um, he says innovation is not really about small versus large company. It's more like, young versus old companies. Should DOD be kind of looking at businesses, a business set-aside program designed for companies younger than a certain number of years or that are still founder-led? Does that get to the, I guess, the idea behind this thing? Or is it really small versus large? Look, I think there's an important distinction here. The small business set-aside program is not exclusively to enable access to quote-unquote innovation. You know, it's to create opportunities for small businesses of all kinds, some of which are innovative and some of which aren't. So I think it's important to separate that out into two separate buckets. And not all the small businesses that we should be worried about protecting fall into the category of cutting-edge technology. In fact, the majority of what the government procures has little to nothing to do with cutting-edge innovation. And in particular, within this small business set-aside program. We've looked at the product service codes and NAICS codes of the majority of 
the the products and services procured through the set aside program. And this is not next generation technology. This is valves, saws, lodging. These are commodities. This is so I think getting pigeonholed in this conversation about innovation is not accurate in the context of the small business set aside program. It's certainly an important discussion to have. The idea that you should be looking for companies that are newer or founder led, that's a worthy discussion, but it's not necessarily at the heart of the small business program. And I think a lot of people misunderstand that. They think because the government says we access innovation through the small business program, that's what the program exists to do. When in fact, that's, that's very far from the truth. The program exists, you know, for a lot of reasons, but a lot of the small businesses, the true small businesses, they're not innovative. Yeah. So I think, first of all, I don't disagree at all with what Ben said, but as Amanda was saying, there's a lot of different things going on here and people like to anchor to exciting stuff and, and innovation is very important. And innovation can tie to, to, to non-innovative things. But the equal kind of question is, what is the taxpayer getting for their tax dollars in, in a related and equally as important thing? What is our defense apparatus getting for uh, each dollar spent? And how much grift is going on? We spent over that time period roughly $1.2 billion on men's outerwear. And the number of small businesses went from 172 to 108. I mean, these are all just data points. It doesn't necessarily tell us whether the quality of the men's outerwear that we purchased for our, the various forces are, is better or worse. We're clearly spending more on it. There's a lot going on here and we need to deal with all of them, but it all needs to start with what's the purpose of these set-aside programs? Is it innovation? I've never heard. There's some claims about it. Or is it to support small businesses? Again, it gets back to that same question and it's a very complex problem, but the data is there to explore it. And we just need, frankly, we need accountability. Have you guys looked into like the history of, of some of these programs? Because I know like in the 60s, I was reading some stuff and they're like the Great Society and all that kind of stuff. They wanted to use the Department of Defense because that's where the money was to do some of these kind of social welfare programs. And defense focused people were complaining like that's a misuse of defense funds. Defense funds should be going towards capability. If you want social programs, do it like through social programs. Have you traced that back? Does that sound right to you? Or what's what do you think is the ultimate aim? Yeah, I think you're right. I think we read some analyses of these programs that date back several decades. And what you just described, I, I think, is the truth that that these were basically social welfare programs run through the Department of Defense and broadly all across the government. These are not set-aside program is government-wide, and I can't remember. I, I, I think that was the case from the moment it was enacted. And there is definitely a worthwhile discussion to be had as to whether the government should be using procurement as a mechanism to promote a social welfare program. We read a couple of pieces that have come out over the last decades ago take that position that, wait a second, it's not appropriate, but it became very unpopular very quickly to be on that side of the equation because the, you're twisted into being anti-small business, which is frankly not the case. I, I think if you are pro-small business, you cannot support the system that's currently in place. As I said in the beginning of our conversation, the system that's currently in place is detrimental to small businesses. 
but it's a bit of a complicated explanation as you're learning here in real time. So people glom onto this idea that it's the sacred cow. That was actually the title of one of the primary sources I, I referenced in my paper that somebody wrote about 15 years ago that small businesses are the sacred cow. And if you say anything bad about these programs, you're anti-American, you're, you're big business, but that's, that's not the truth. Yeah, Eric, I think you raised an, an, an incredibly important question, maybe one of the most important ones. And I'm not a, an expert on this. They say, whoever doesn't know history will, will forever remain a child. And the, the past flows like an artery of truth to the present. When you said what you said, I, again, I don't know what McNamara, for example, would say if he saw the current situation today, but I can't imagine he would be very happy about it. Or if you brought back anyone from George Marshall, anyone who really was in charge the last time we truly won a war and mobilized our economy, it would be incredible to think what they would say about the system we have right now. We'll never know the answer to that. But to your point about it, from there, just manifesting into the situation, I think that's completely accurate. And if we want to make this a politically motivated jobs program, so be it. But the, the, one of the main problems is they hide that. And I think whatever ends up happening, we need more transparency. And the political class needs to be held to account to funding budgets uh, that are motivated by it. Right now, they get, irrespective of Democrat, Republican, they get away with, with doing this. And they don't have to tell the average citizen, this is what we're really doing. And hopefully that will begin to change. So let me say your argument back to you guys. So first, the small business program, the small business program is not a, really about innovation, right? It's about this kind of other welfare or just political ends kind of goal. But then even when you're saying, does this program help small businesses? You're saying, no, the program to help small businesses, regardless of defense outcomes for the Department of Defense, regardless of those outcomes, like it's not actually helping small businesses try to enter. It's actually serving the needs of these small, large businesses that have tons of experience in the game and they can keep winning. And that seems to have like this effect where you guys have already shown that the overarching industrial base has been declining rapidly over the past decade. And that's a continuing trend. But even within small business, and we're trying to target small business, that, that consolidation is still happening, right? Yeah, it's also, there's another really important point, and that's the existence of this set-aside program also provides cover for Congress and government stakeholders. It, it, it's a distraction. And they're also putting policies into place that make it even harder for new entrants, even harder for the truly small companies to survive. So they've got this cover they can point to. See how great we're doing? We're hitting our 23% procurement goals. We've achieved our goals. Rah, rah, rah. And meanwhile, they're implementing new cybersecurity requirements that increase costs to the small businesses by orders of magnitude. They're implementing contract bundling policies that favor large primes. They're doing all of these other things while nobody is looking that make the market even less hospitable for small companies. I, I just think you tend to know you're on the target with things when people resort to name-calling, hyper-defensiveness, and an unwillingness to even discuss data. And uh, Amanda mentioned some of this a bit earlier, and that's exactly what goes on here. And unfortunately, that's what goes on 
with just about any issue politically, but it's very prevalent within this small business space. And I think that's part of the way that something that they're not really willing to acknowledge is actually going on, which we've somewhat been able to quantify, at least parts of it. Yeah, here's a, a good stat from you guys that the number of small businesses getting 100 million or more in prime contracts from the government grew from 26 to 84 over the 2015 to 2021 timeframe. So there's quite a bit, right? You guys found the top 20 firms had 10% of all small business dollars and then 93,000 other firms shared the remainder. So you guys had some good data on here. More dollars are going to fewer firms. That seems to be coming out clearly. But you guys said, you know, you were getting name called and all this kind of stuff. What has been the reaction to your findings? I guess both like the the positive side and also the negative side. We were shocked that this particular piece of research has um, taken on a kind of life of its own only because it's the fourth in a series of papers we've written and none of the, you know, we thought the other ones were great too, but this one seems to have struck a chord and gained a lot of momentum. And for the most part, what I'm hearing is from companies that are saying, oh my gosh, thank you for articulating what we're going through. We always knew this was going on, but you've really laid it out in a way that finally makes people see it. So the majority of the feedback has really been positive and grateful. And we've even heard some very positive feedback from folks on the Hill. I had a meeting with some Senate staffers last week. They're all fighting their fights, both in the Senate and the House, on number of issues that I think touch on what we report in this paper some of them directly and some of them indirectly. So the SBIR program, we don't reference it by name in this paper, but it's we explore it in depth in earlier research. And by virtue of the fact that the Small Business Innovation Research Program is specifically set aside for small businesses, it's related to the data that we present in this paper. So there are some folks who would like to challenge our conclusions on the basis that oh, you're being, you're being myopic because you don't really see the importance of these very large small businesses. Without them, we wouldn't be able to do X, Y, and Z. So we're not suggesting that these businesses be closed down. We're just suggesting that they, they not be afforded preferential treatment in government contracting as if they were small. And I think that that's definitely a third rail issue because look, the small business program, it's a king-making program, much like full and open. There's a handful of companies, everyone can name them, that do a lot of the work for the government, right? The major defense contractors. There is the same phenomenon happening inside the small business ecosystem. And just there are folks on the inside who have a lot at stake in terms of maintaining contracts with the large government contractors. There's a lot of folks who have a lot at stake in terms of enabling large small businesses to keep their set aside status. So that's a circuitous way without naming people in particular, this is a very hot button issue. There's a lot of jobs at stake, even though these employee thresholds are below 500 people. Uh, this is for certain representatives. Some of these very large small businesses are important to them. They're big job creators in their state and they don't want to see the, the boat get rocked. I was just thinking, are there a lot of firms that are like right up against that, I guess that barrier between small and large just so they stay as small? Because you can look in that discontinuity between large and small and see, is there just an inordinate amount of firms that are like limiting their, their employment size or whatever 
to stay within that bounds because they don't want to bridge into the medium size and then compete like against the big guys. Like they're not willing to go that far. So do they limit their their growth or like they grow to a size and then they limit themselves? And now we have a whole bunch right on that teetering edge. So you do hear about that, about outgrowing your set aside. Now, what is interesting per our earlier point is there's a lot of industries where you're not subject to anything other than a revenue cap. I mean, anything other than employee cap, rather, not revenue. So you can keep your employee count artificially low and by doing a number of things, partnerships and so on. So I think companies that operate in those kinds of NAICS codes are probably at less of a risk of graduating from the program. And so they don't have to worry about these things. Um, They have no revenue cap, so they can they have basically free reign. You do hear about challenges that other kinds of businesses that operate in spaces that have a revenue cap, they graduate out. I hear it a lot with 8A in particular, less so on the standard small business world, but more on these subcategories, these extra special groups, because I think they are held to different standards. It does suppress the economy in a lot of ways, including what you just described. You're going to always have non-free market things going on when you have arbitrary standards for qualifying to be a member of a certain group. Yeah, maybe let's let's take a step back. And can you just talk about what are the various categories of small business? Because it's not just one monolithic small business program, right? Like you have stages of small businesses. And then you also have within that, like you mentioned 8A, and there's like women-owned, so small disadvantage. What are all these different types? So it's such a great question. And I wish there was a straightforward answer. So there's a, a variety of different set-aside categories, some of which actually you don't have to be a small business. So Alaskan and Native American certified companies, they're not small in the same way you need to be, quote, small if you're not an Alaskan or Native American company. So it's not always just size related. It has to do with the demography of your founder or owner or you know, operator. And it's a moving target. And it was one of the reasons that just in the introduction of our research paper, you'll see it was really complicated for us to even define the DUNS numbers. When you take the data set of all the companies that worked with the Department of Defense from 2015 to 2021, there is no straightforward way in which you know whether a company, a DUNS number, is associated with being small or not. Because there's this kind of like cadre of different types of set-aside companies, and you can register for multiple, you can self-certify. The contract action associated with your DUNS number can sometimes reference a set-aside group, and sometimes it doesn't. So we also make a very strong recommendation in the paper that there needs to be a single source of truth where this data is maintained so you can better understand what the composition of the supplier base is against these various groups, woman-owned, minority-owned, Hub zone. So hub zone relates to where you operate your business and where employees of your business live. And I, I won't go down that rabbit hole too much, but as you may imagine, these hub zone like district lines, they're not updated very regularly. So it's I remember when I lived in New York City, my apartment in Chelsea was actually in a hub zone. Again, just like no everyday American would think a company with a three and a half billion dollar market cap is small. No everyday American who's been to Manhattan would think that my apartment in the neighborhood it was in in Chelsea qualifies as a historically underutilized business zone. But these 
these criteria are are very arbitrary and very murky. And what's concerning to us is that there's a host of new set-aside groups being discussed currently in this administration. They have yet to be codified the way that woman-owned small business is codified. You can register for that in SAM. It's not quite the same yet with things like LGBT or Black-owned or other groups that are emerging. But the problems that we describe in the paper will only magnify the more special interest groups you insert into the equation. And we have reason to believe that the programs themselves will fail to benefit the groups that they are claiming to serve in the same ways they've failed to benefit small businesses. So you'll just have, it's a king-making program. So you'll have a couple that emerge that know how to game the system, but none of that wealth is transferred back to these communities. And is that just because you just have a CEO or someone incorporated that's a disadvantage or part of this demographics, but really the company is just looks like a regular GovCon company or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I there I don't really know of any examples off the top of my head that where that's not the case, where there isn't an industry insider deeply involved in the actual management and operation of that business. And the other thing is, and we mentioned this at length in the paper as well, what these set-asides fail to do is address the underlying problems that keep companies from breaking into the defense market and navigating it successfully. Regardless of the demography of their founder, outsiders can't break in. And these set-aside programs don't change that reality. So you're saying... They have uh, the Biden administration. They were talking about increasing the small disadvantaged businesses government wide from 10 to 15 percent by 25. Is this going to come at the expense of other small businesses? It's cutting into that 23 percent. And so you just are changing the winners and losers. Or what do you have to say about this kind of change? Look, I say that kind of change in the absence of addressing the underlying issues that we describe in the paper that are critical issues. In the absence of addressing those, it will only magnify the problem. It will only increase the market share of the largest small businesses. Yeah, I think there's an important truth that needs to be uttered. You can't throw money in programs at a system of dysfunctional incentives. And they're talking about exponentially increasing the level of dysfunction when you're talking about very abstract, kind of purely identity-driven, hard to enforce new set-asides. And again, just common sense will dictate what will happen. And we've already been able to document what has already happened. It'd be hard to bet against just additional massive benefits to very connected existing players that are in all likelihood very politically connected, that are experts at gaming the system. And it'll, it'll, again, it'll just be at the expense of the taxpayer. Yeah, it it does cause one to wonder, like when the Biden administration made this announcement, were there hundreds or thousands of young entrepreneurs that are part of this demographic that were just like, I'm going to start a GovCon company or because like, where are all these companies coming from? Yeah, you bring up a good point. And it's just it's wild because if you're not entrenched in the government market, you literally don't even know how to find out who's interested in buying what you're selling. You don't even know where to go to find an open requirement. And a, like, you don't know any of that stuff. So the idea that 
people inside the government think that the solution to this problem is just increasing spend with certified small businesses and not addressing the fact that no one even knows how to work with the government. It, it doesn't even pass the sniff test. Yeah, and you guys had a recent, one of your previous papers, you were looking at solicitations and the solicitations that come out require like these really high education levels. Like I've read through some of them and I don't understand what's going on. Right. So like these outsiders, it's hard for an outsider to come into this space. And you guys, you guys are, of course, a small business yourself dealing with government. So I want to get a little bit more into some of these issues that you guys have been talking about. What are the foundational issues that stop small businesses from being able to enter and then really scale? Because the point of small business isn't just to be a small business, right? Who wants to, there's some people who want to say, I'll do this little niche thing. I'll do it well and I'll stay a small business my whole life. You know, a lot of people want to scale up in that. So uh, did you just want to talk about some of the things that you've heard about and then, or you've actually experienced yourself that have felt like that barrier that small business set-asides aren't really helping you with. Yeah, sure. So to my earlier point in terms of trying to understand who's interested in buying what you're selling, if you're a small business and you haven't sold to the Department of Defense before, say, let's for the sake of example, say you're a drone company, you've been in the commercial market. Maybe you saw an article in the Wall Street Journal that says Army seeks drones. Maybe you have some abstract notion that the Army is interested in drones. On a practical level, you have no idea where to begin. So then this is the first set of barriers is, okay, I want to try to figure out how I would break into the government market. You're then inundated with just so much information that you really don't know how to assess. You start to Google things and you wait, okay, there's all these accelerator programs. There's the SIPR program. I think I've heard of DARPA. Okay, what's the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab? Like there's dozens and dozens of these programs that have the same stated objectives. And you're like, okay, maybe I go down one of these paths. How do I even work with them? Where does the government put out needs to industry? There's, so say you manage to figure out that SAM.gov is a place that the government goes to solicit information from industry. This is a lot of ifs, because quite honestly, nine times out of 10, in order to even get to that point, you need industry insight, which means you're paying a consulting firm or someone for information and access. You're basically pay to play by this point, but let's take that off the table for a second and say you're not doing that. You're going to Sam. Then you encounter what exactly what you said. That's if you manage to find an opportunity and figure out where the search bar is on Sam Beta and their archaic Boolean search process that doesn't search for related terms. Like all of these what ifs, the stars have to align. And it, it's basically impossible for all that to happen. That's what the long and the short of that is. So to even connect with a prospective customer means that you are making a concerted effort as a company and you're committing to spending probably tens of thousands of dollars in some way, shape, or form, be it for a subscription service to tailored opportunities through, say, something like GovShop, GovWin, BloombergGov, or through a lobbying firm, consulting firm that promises to help you understand how to navigate the government market, or maybe you pay to hire someone who's been on the inside, and, and that's a role that you're, you're hiring for. It's a five- or six-figure investment. So right there, you've established this just incredibly anti-competitive ecosystem where suddenly the innovativeness of your capability is not as relevant to that end user as your ability to navigate the system. You could have the best drone and you could be very willing to sell that to the army. 
you can't even get in the door unless you're willing to essentially pay to play, which means that you might say no, in which case the end user from the army may never see or, or have access to the best and brightest capability that it needs. It's very corrosive, not just to the businesses, but also to the warfighter. So the pay to play companies, it's like a self-selecting process almost, right? And who are the types that do pay to play? Yeah. And it's such a dirty term, pay to play, but it's not necessarily even a bad thing because there are appropriate times and places where you want to weed out the, you want serious companies, but certainly in its most democratic open opportunities, calls for market research, the government should create a process whereby companies can participate without the burdens currently levied on them in this existing system. Like you should be able to at least get your idea, product or service in a basic format in front of someone inside the government without having to pay to play. And you guys are pretty, I would say, experienced in this realm. Even you coming in with your small business, did you, do you feel like you had that knowledge and that background to take it on yourself? Or did you have to like still have building out these cybersecurity systems, cost accounting systems, hiring consultants, all this kind of stuff? Did you also have to do that? Oh, yeah. I naively thought that we would be somehow impervious to all of these challenges. You know, I, I just I think probably a lot of small businesses that are excited about supporting the government have that mentality. Like, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid making the same mistakes so many others make. And we're going to get through this somehow because we just really care. And we want to do right by the customer. But the, the truth of the matter is we're suffering the same way that every small business suffers. We've had massive delays in, you know, what we thought were done deal contracts. We've been subject to audits we didn't know existed. We had to invest in cybersecurity compliance solutions for some subcontractor work that we have that have increased our costs as a company by five figures. And this is an important point we make in the paper that only those companies that can afford to do these kinds of things will survive. And those are not necessarily the companies with the best and brightest capabilities. And it's scary to think about that. Just talking to you guys, it always, it just reminds me that government often does, they'll do one thing on the one hand and then try to counteract that with something the opposite on the other hand. And they're just like these conflicting policies and actions. But one that you guys pointed to, there's also, so we have the, this big small business set aside program, but then we also have these big pushes towards bundling contract requirements. And of course, the General Services Administration, they have their category management where they try to lump a bunch of buys together. You mentioned this practice called captains of industry. Can you just talk a little bit first, what's the difference between captains of industry and category management? And then what is the downstream effect on small business? Truth be told, I can't speak to the differences between category management and captains of industry because we've stumbled on this captains of industry phenomenon accidentally. And so we didn't go about this research with a clear understanding of what it was and what other similar phenomena exist. But it was brought to our attention by a gentleman who runs an industry group for small aerospace manufacturing and services companies. And he had seen some of our earlier research and his member companies, for the most part, they're out on the West Coast. They have been suffering tremendously as a result of these contract bundling policies, specifically ones that are adopted by DLA, which was the customer that many of them served. So he brought to my attention this captains of industry phenomenon in the context of his type of 
member company, which is companies with under 20 million in annual revenue that have been in some cases serving the DOD for decades, doing critical work, both in components, manufacturing, training, really critical work. And the downstream effects to your question are that something like 60% of small businesses in this category have, have ceased to serve DOD, where they've done this captives of industry program. And they had these grand promises of, oh, we're going to preserve small business participation through subcontracting and teaming arrangements. We believe these primes are going to keep these small businesses engaged as subs and teaming partners. The inspector general and this industry group I'm referencing, SBAIC, they both conducted analyses and both of them were unequivocal in that small businesses are not seeing their fair share of the pie, that, that 60% have disappeared from these ecosystems. Many are going out of business altogether, which is frightening. When you talk about our disappearing industrial base, a lot of people think of offshoring and our reliance on overseas manufacturers, but there's something else going on here. And that's this kind of conglomeration effect domestically. You've got these major companies that are absorbing all of this business. And these IG reports have also indicated that on-time delivery and price, they're suffering. It's not as if these major contractors are doing a better job because I don't want to get in the middle of that. I don't necessarily believe in propping up any kind of business, small or large, for the sake of it at the expense of quality or innovativeness or price. So this is problematic because quality and delivery and things like that are degrading as a result of these captains of industry phenomenon. To piggyback off of Amanda's point, we need to think about second order consequences. And there's a lot that we've ignored for a long time. You're not going to retire from OnlyFans and become uh, a, a proprietor of one of the dying aircraft rotary wing suppliers that we need to sustain an Air Force that, that are being subjected to what Amanda just described. There's a big in-between from your failed OnlyFans or whatever social media experiment or pick your 21st century job to doing something that we actually need. And I wish that we could talk about this more with all sorts of different things, because there are major second and, and, and even third or fourth degree order consequences that are of the utmost importance. And that's not ever something you hear about, which I hope changes. You know, the other thing that's scary about these captains of industry programs, we want to step back a little bit and look at another macro trend that's concerning. I remember bringing this up to a four star who was an early mentor of mine. And I said, with all due respect, Admiral, I graduated from Georgetown University not a single one of my friends went to work for a major integrator. I don't know a single person from my kind of academic circles that works for a major integrator. So they're not attracting this kind of talent pool that you would need if you were going to even attempt to justify the consolidation that's occurred. There's a lot of problems here. Yeah, it seems if innovation was really the kind of key thing or driving costs down, capabilities up, then why would small businesses need this protection? I guess the question here is, is small business actually like a unique problem or is it part of a larger government acquisition problem? I think it's certainly part of a larger government acquisition problem. You can't possibly assess the small business set-aside program and all the problems that come with it and aim to solve that without running into all of the acquisitions issues that you know, Eric. There's just, the system has a lot of problems. This is among them. It relates to them. And I think I'd love to 
emphasize your point here. I think you, you're brave for bringing this up that shouldn't we just let the best win? Like, where's merit in all of this? And I think it's just so critical that we bring merit back into the equation that innovation should rue the day, that your ability to navigate a system, the fact that you have a membership in a particular group, be it as a woman, as a small business, none of that should outweigh technical merit. And if it, I couldn't agree more. And again, if you're gonna if you're gonna subsidize something or overpay for something, have second order consequences in mind when you're doing that. And we're living through and we're gonna continue to live through the consequences of very bad decisions relating to supply chain and in sort of energy decisions of specific administrations and, and in some cases multiple administrations where over time we should have probably been held to account to to buy onshore versions of specific products and to sustain that industrial base to ensure that there's a labor supply of people that will take it through to the next generation these are things that we unfortunately didn't consider that that they're going to have continued ma massive negative consequences on our society that outweigh whatever additional cost would have been there had we done the smart kind of long-term thing over the course of the last couple of decades. You guys didn't really talk about this in the paper, but do you think like Buy American, where they're trying to onshore a lot of productive capacity for the Department of Defense, is that kind of like a similar issue or is there something unique about Buy American? I'm not an expert on this and I'll let Amanda talk in a second, but it's got as many holes as a, a wheel of Swiss cheese from everything I've seen. There's too many exceptions. It, again, it's, it, it, it mirrors almost everything you see where it's a marketing thing that sounds great and we should do it, in my opinion, but the system we've set up uh, it is completely illogical. Just talking about like the small businesses and innovation, it seems like to some degree we might want less small businesses. I was, I've been tracking this newer kind of like manufacturing firm, Hadrian, which is software defined. And they've been talking about there's thousands and thousands of mom and pop manufacturers from like the 60s building like these aerospace parts of very small scale and they stay small and they don't have any like incentive to invest and tool up and modernize. And so we almost want the most efficient firm. And sometimes the most efficient firms are big firms. Totally. Yeah, but they're also not the old firms. I still come back to this. Do we need to like incentivize new firms or is there like a small business program or a COTS program or what have you type of program like Cibber, but really aimed for newer and innovative firms to like fence off that money because they're not going to have the, the time or the money or the skills to put together those massive proposal solicitation stuff and, and with the, all the volumes. Yeah, I think so. I, I agree. Yes. And we've brought that up in a number of our earlier research papers. It's that if you're going to assess programs, you need a number of variables with which to assess them. And we've always suggested that the Cibber program, for instance, that one measure of success should be the extent to which it's attracted companies with no prior government experience. We've also floated the idea that the year that a firm was founded should matter. Whether it should be a qualifier or a disqualifier, I can't say. Because let's be real here. PW Communications, our parent company, was founded in 1996. And our core business is very different than what Alex and I are building out. So there is such a thing as a company kind of changing course. And just because we were established 26 years ago doesn't mean we can't be innovative. So I 
hesitate to put these kind of strict rules around certain things that really should be treated with nuance. But certainly, to your point, things like company age should be factored in. They are a data point that can help you understand whether you're doing a good job of attracting innovation into a system or not. So we're coming up on time here. Was there anything you wanted to address quickly on subcontract data and then anything you'd like to end on? Yeah, I guess for those of you who may have read the paper, we dedicate a a section to the subcontracting findings. And it's something that probably needs a little bit more attention than we were able to give it in the paper. But long and the short of it is, aside from the challenges that we've discussed today, you're also seeing how these small business programs are literally enabling large companies, not large businesses that are qualified small, but actual large businesses to expand their market because they perform as subcontractors to small businesses. There's there, there are some legitimate reasons for that on occasion, but at the very least, we feel that dollars earmarked for small businesses, to the extent that this program is going to exist, you should not be able to funnel them through to large companies and then have that count towards your 23% procurement goals. If the money went to Northrop Grumman, it shouldn't count as money spent on a small business. You would need a whole bunch of like, infrastructure for supply chain insight. You said that there's all tier one suppliers over 30,000 have to actually submit to FPDS that data. It was your finding that it wasn't, that wasn't actually a reliable source of what's actually going on. Yeah. The, the subcontracting data is generally less reliable than what you can find on prime data, but it's there. And we've, we're on a marching battle cry to improve the quality of that data and some other work and folks that we've connected with that agree, and, and we're trying to push for that more accurate and more comprehensive subcontracting data. But even with what you have, you could start to chip away at this problem. We did it on an unfunded research paper to some extent. It's not that big of an infrastructure that it took to, to begin to connect the dots here. And look, we're not saying you shouldn't be allowed to subcontract to a large business. We're just saying that shouldn't count towards your procurement set-aside goals. I think the community really appreciates, Amanda and Alex, all of your research that you put in, these unfunded papers that you're, you're putting into Naval Postgraduate Research uh, Symposiums. Those have been really helpful to me and others. So we really thank you and appreciate you coming back on to the Acquisition Talk podcast. It's been really great. Alex, Amanda, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks a lot. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.